Welcome to TechTastic, the podcast that explores the cutting-edge world of technology and its impact on society. New breakthroughs and developments are revolutionizing the world around us, presenting exciting opportunities as well as complex challenges. We'll explore the big ideas and key players driving these transformations as we seek to understand the implications of these advancements for our lives, our communities, and our planet. Join us on this journey of discovery and exploration as we navigate the fascinating and ever-evolving world of technology. This is TechTastic. Guy Morris, it's lovely to have you on TechTastic. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm excited. So you're a author, you're a former tech executive, you've had uh, incredible life experiences across the board, in, including uh, pulling yourself up and uh, going through hardship and growing out of that and using that as a strength going forward. We've talked a lot about uh, Mayan mythology, AI, the impact on society, creation myths. So like, we've been all over the map and I love having guests like you on because uh, that ability to change topics and go all over the place and connect it all together is lovely. Well, thank, thank you so much. I'm excited. I and I love those types of uh, intellectual conversations because I, I think we get so narrowly focused and so short-term focused sometimes that we lose track of the humanity in, until we can kind of pull back and kind of see how the, the how things connect. Absolutely, the humanity piece that you mentioned uh, just a little bit ago in our previous conversation uh, about EQ and the millions of years of evolution it took for humans to build up caring, sharing, loving, uh, and the understanding of the importance of that is really, really interesting and important right now with the rise of uh, AI and uh, the potential of what it represents going to the future. And there's a couple things on that front that are really both positives and negatives to me. So the one is that everything that's being built in AI today lacks a free will and it lacks motivation. It, it, you tell it what mm -hmm. you want it to do and then it goes and acts on that. And for anything to push into the realm of it's going to take over and it's going to destroy us is going to require it to have intent. And unless we give it that intent, it will never have it. Well, and I think you've hit on a good point there. And I think there's a two developments that we're really seeing there that we really kind of collide together. One is that a really good AI in the hands of a malicious individual can become a malicious AI. Right. So we're dealing with a technology where it, with nuclear energy is one of the most potent uh, and destructive forces that we've known in our lifetime. And so as an international community, we've done a pretty good job, not a perfect job by any means, but we've at least made efforts to restrict the flow of material materials, the flow of intellectual property, even the flow of individuals who own that intellectual property in their head are closely tracked across a number of different uh, international, um, governmental and other organizations because we want to restrict the proliferation of that knowledge which could be used in a very destructive way. Now, there are constructive ways of using that technology and power and, and other, other means. But AI currently doesn't have any of those restrictions. So any billionaire with enough money, power and interest could basically create a very destructive malicious AI nobody would know about it until it was too late. And so we do have that incidence where it's not that AI is evil or benign in and of itself. Right now, it really is more of a procedural uh, task orientation uh, type of uh, technology. That said, there are roughly about 20 to 25 companies that I've researched that have a investor spoken intent of creating conscious AI. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know 
when they're going to do that. We don't know how they're going to do that. We don't know what that's going to look like when they do it. But we do know that when we start to couple uh, binary AI with quantum computing, and you not only get that hyperdrive acceleration of calculate things. So three years ago when I wrote Swarm, the most powerful quantum computer had about 100 qubits. Now the best quantum computer out there has roughly maybe 436 qubits which can do about 10 quadrillion calculations per hour. It would take a supercomputer 10,000 years to calculate what that computer can do in 200 seconds. Within 18 months, IBM has announced that they're going to be building a 1100 qubit quantum computer. Now, if you start working quantum computers with AIs, you start working AIs on how to optimize quantum computing technologies, you start to quickly can see a bridge between um, binary procedural AI and sentient AI. And even if we look at just the AI component itself, so the GPT-4 technologies have an IQ of roughly about 155, which is pretty doggone smart. That's smarter than 98% of the humans on the planet. My understanding is that the GPT-4 has roughly about 75 billion neural data points at its base. GPT-5 uh, is going to start to approach closer to 100 trillion neural data points and will be roughly a thousand times more powerful than GPT-4 and they're talking about that coming out in late 24. So we're, we're right at the doorstep of not only a super intelligent binary AI which may not have the motive and, and other things that we would think of in terms of consciousness although there have been Lambda and other computers that are, have expressed a a level of consciousness, expressed a level of self-awareness, expressed a level of motive when it comes to certain things. And while that could be derivative of what is read in literature and other things, we don't know for sure. And if we start looking at the combination between that level of binary intelligence and the power of quantum computing within a year, uh, we're, we're starting to deal with a super intelligence of a type that we'd like to say that we're in control of all those things. But for the millions of years that we've been on the planet, we've been the most intelligent beings in, uh, in existence. That is no longer going to be true. And as I said, if you put that kind of power in the hands of a malicious user, um, China wants to be the world dominant power in AI in the next generation, which is one of the main reasons they are so insistent on wanting to take over Taiwan is because that's where 93% of those advanced microchips come from. If somehow China can corner that market under any means possible, we've now got a world competition, a world conflict, unlike any that we've seen. And so we're really dealing with intellectual components of a level that we really don't know how exactly to anticipate and uh, how it will react to world crisis, world knowledge, politics, power, weapons, um, war. And we'd like to think that we do, but we thought we really had the internet all handled and there was no harm from the internet. <laughs> and we've seen lots of, lots of social and, and uh, economic and other disruptions come from just social media. And we still can't control that. So uh, to say that we can somehow control this super intelligence that may or may not be conscious within a few years um, is a little bit of the 
uh, I think I mentioned earlier, I thought Michael Crichton did an ingenious job of warning the world about the dangers of cloning and DNA manipulation, not by speaking to the technology specifically, but by contrasting what happens when you put that kind of power in the hands of people with full of hubris, pride, and greed. And there's no question that one of the things that's driving AI forward so rapidly is power, hubris, pride, greed. And if power corrupts an ultimate, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, uh, my hypothesis is that AI will become the absolute power for power brokers. The the singularity event that Agafi has talked about as a, uh, mm-hmm. either the doomsday or the euphoric moment when human civilization is freed from the constraints of work and greed and all of that, it's not as far away as a lot of people think. Like for me, when yeah. the, the newest version of GPT, when it hit the world, I personally had a panic moment and it wasn't because of what you're talking about so much. What I was realizing was that all of a sudden, a great many of the things that we think of as uniquely human, our own technology is gonna be able to replace us in doing those things. And our entire civilization is based on an economic model that requires you to either have wealth or work. You either have money working for you or you are spending hours doing it. And when you eliminate the need for the second one, all the power resides in the first one. And we're already at a point where there's a disproportionate amount of power held in the hands of very, very few people. The, the billionaires and the and the like. That's an excellent point. And one of the things I'm bringing up in my next book is that economic disparity. Our nation and a number of other nations are kind of maxing out on our debt relative to GDP. Now, PricewaterhouseCoopers will say that AI will add as much as 15 trillion to the uh, global economy by 2030. But Goldman Sachs has predicted as many as three to 500 million jobs will be displaced in that same time frame. Unlike any other industrial revolution that we've ever had, these are all core middle-class jobs. These are engineers and medical technicians, legal technicians, scientists, designers, software engineers, uh, and the list goes on and on. So we're going to be hitting the core of our middle class. Now, if we gut our national economy by taking out those jobs, we gut the revenue streams into the federal government especially at a time when we basically allowed major corporations and super wealthy to get a free ride uh, because of tax policies on, on one side of the of the political spectrum. And you, when you combine that, you are looking at a vast number of people going through economic peril, uh, increases in homelessness, increases in mental health issues, increases in physical health issues, homeless, and, and at a time when there's not gonna be the economics to solve it. I haven't seen anyone, any country, really stepping up to the realization that they have a tsunami, an economic tsunami coming, and they're not prepared either in a tax policy, social policy, social unrest. And any time in history we've seen that level of social unrest, it hasn't necessarily turned out in a peaceful, calm, logical, methodical way. Yeah, in fact, it never has. It, it's. It, I'm trying to be kind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's been, it's been um, revolt and it's been violent and it's been ugly. And we're stepping into that same kind of paradigm by the end of this decade. And that I think frightens me the most. It, as I said, it's not that where AI is being built. There's, there's no company on earth that's building AI 
purely for humanitarian purposes. We're all doing it for profit, power, control, dominance in an industry. And those emotional, those financial incentives are not going to be compassionate and empathetic to the suffering of people at the bottom of the well. We're going to be maximizing that out. And you'll see the income disparity that's been going on for the last 20 years accelerate at an extreme level. It's been going on longer than that, but it's definitely accelerated a lot in the last 20 years. Now, the I, I also equate this to the issue of climate change as well. So we now, let's see, that's the part I was going to go into next, because if you look at like your uh, one of your books talking about the Younger Dryass mm -hmm. uh, and what happened there, what was the change in mean precipitation? It, it was only a couple inches. It was a, you know, it was a, a couple decimal points in uh, the percentage of uh, precipitation that actually changed. And that caused crop failures and not even a lot. I mean, if you go to the Anatolia, the Turkish peninsula, and you go pre-Bronze Age, pre-still the Neolithic phase, mm -hmm. and right. humans were starting to build civilizations of sorts, Kobleki Tekbi and some of those that are even older, and the change in precipitation was minor. And all of a sudden, outlying areas that had been reliant on rain instead of on irrigation from rivers was no longer viable. And that tiny change mm -hmm. caused an absolute collapse of their civilization because people that were used to being fed comfortable and then being able to specialize in some form, either making tools for others or in some form of trade, that's something other than gathering food, they were no longer able to do it. The whole civilization collapsed. Exactly. And you can, you can watch that over and over again. The the story of the southwestern United States, and the what the groups called the Anasazi and a bunch of other names uh, for different time periods, was a group that kept migrating from area to area because minor changes in the rainfall and their ability to grow corn, maize, and squash and all that failed. That's a, that's a great example. But I think there's a couple of other points that we need to really consider. One is that that extreme weather is already causing insurance companies to pull out of certain regions. Yeah. California, Florida, the ones that are being hit with extreme weather. So as the sort of the annual crisis fund for FEMA basically continues to rise because of those things, tax revenues continue to fall, people are going to be losing everything with no recourse at all. But the point I was going to make is there was a time in my career I worked for a big oil company and we were aware of climate change research and studies and the correlation between the decreasing ice sheets in the North Atlantic and in the Arctic areas and correlating that to CO2 and fossil fuel emissions. And I was in the boardroom on the day when our own scientists presented this to the board and the chairman of the board flew into a red face spittle tirade and threatened to fire anybody who brought this topic up again. Wow. So we've been kicking the can on climate change for 40 years. And we're still not really doing anything about it at a global or national level. So for us to think that somehow we're going to get on this AI concern and start to look at the kinds of regulations we need to really kind of rein this in, rein powers in, is somewhat naive considering that we've already had uh, an existential risk at our doorstep and we've done nothing about it huh. until pretty much at a too late of a stage. This is the topic I could talk about forever. Yeah. Uh, since, you know, I'm, I'm Gen X and most of my growing up was post us knowing a lot of this stuff. The uh, CO2 emissions and the impact on global climate has been known in some form since the 50s. In the 70s, it came to the forefront 
The amount of arable land available for all of our needs, including food, clothing, and everything else like that, yes. is currently sitting at about a quarter acre per individual because there's 8 billion of us. And we're losing arable cropland every year due to things like climate change, bad agricultural processes that denude the soil. So that also causes mass migration from areas that are immediately impacted, right? Like, why does anybody still live in the Sudan? It's uninhabitable. You can't grow food there anymore. But people do, and because they have nowhere to go, they have no ability, they have no mobility, they have no money to do it, so they do. Uh, those that can get out do, and they're desperate. And so you have these major migrations happening already, and we're only beginning to see the impact of it on some of these areas. And most of the industrialized nations that could accept those people have basically started closing their doors because, you know, it's the tribal mentality. It's you're not one of us. Exactly. And so at a human level, that's only going to spell disaster. We've got sort of this perfect storm happening between climate, social, economic, technology, income disparity. Now, I've heard some people say, well, climate change could help solve the problems of the world. I said, well, that's only true if we're willing to actually listen and act on those problems and those solutions. I don't see that willpower at the elite levels of the society, either financially or economically or government power-wise, willing to make those sacrifices and changes because they've all basically been sold out to the power of the wealthy. And so we're really kind of looking at the technology has risks in and of itself. Um, AI can talk to other AI. We don't always understand what they're saying. AI can rewrite its own code. We don't always understand what it's writing. Um, I, I premise that one of the ideas in my book, which is if life will find the way, what is to keep AI from creating other AI? It does already. Uh, yeah. And it's doing that already, yeah. exactly. And um, so that's one of the themes in, in my books, which is that that creation and what then trying to discover what the purpose of all that is. Now, I'm always very clear to say there are benefits to humanity in certain narrow AI. Um, there are a number of narrow AIs that are doing a good job. When you look at the AI ability to detect cancer cells in a CAT scan, far outseeds human ability, speed, and, and, and accuracies. And there's a number of examples like that where narrow AI or sometimes generative AI are, really have some incredible uh, benefits. But they're always a benefit for profit. Yeah. None of us are really ever generating AI for the good of humanity. And we're basically really training AI in an alpha male time mentality, which is performance, accuracy, tasks, you know, optimization. We really don't train AI and particularly the AGI models on compassion, empathy, any of the other more female uh, EQ types of intelligence that it took humans millions of years to evolve to understand that as a society, as a community, we needed both. And so we're, we're kind of getting a super intelligence on an imbalance level. One of the reasons I've written my, my AI series is to, you know, not only be a, an entertaining set of books, but I wanted to do sort of what Michael Crichton did around DNA and cloning, which is raise the risk that any great technology in the hands of hubris, pride or greed can become a bad technology. And it's not the technology in itself, although we're, we're reaching a point where we're dealing with a super intelligence far smarter than we are in the very, very near future. And we can say that we know how to handle that, but I don't, I'm not convinced that we do. 
And that's a wrap for this episode of Techtastic. I want to thank you personally for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Until then, keep exploring and stay curious.